Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the pastor at Trinity Eastside. Welcome to the uh, Trinity Podcast. Really glad you could be with us today. It is August 11th, Tuesday. I'm going to read this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, and then pray and share a couple of thoughts with you from this text. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he spent some time with them there, and he baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anan near Salim because water was abundant there, and people kept coming and were being baptized. John, of course, had not yet been thrown in prison. Now a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew, and they came to John and said, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you testified, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, No one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses, that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And for this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, we we thank you for this this brief time to be in this story today, we ask that you would help us to see, um, to see the world as John saw it, that gave him such joy, as he said, f- joy that has been fulfilled. So, Lord, we just ask that you would inspire us today with, with this word, with these images, and that it would move us deeper into your kingdom. And what it means to live on this earth and in this season as your citizens. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a really kind of obscure little text. It's a story about Jesus going out to the Judean countryside and baptizing people. And it's really interesting because, I mean, there's actually, this is the only time in the Bible we see Jesus baptizing. And so it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of surprising, honestly. Um, we don't know a lot of what Jesus did. I think it's just, it's one of those times where you just realize like there was a lot that he did that we don't know about. His life was more complex and uh, than the, the few stories that we have from the three years of public ministry, not to mention the 30 plus years before that public ministry began. And yet here we find him out. He's, he's near where John is ministering and he has a prophetic ministry like John. He's having people come out and receive teaching and he's baptizing them. And this um, this irks John's disciples. Uh, maybe because, you know, they've been out there for a long time in the wilderness. They've, they've gone through several seasons and summers and, and scorching days and frigid nights. And they've seen this man wear really uncomfortable clothes and eat really unsavory food and all out of a desire to be faithful to the call God's put on his life. And for whatever reason, there's something in them that sees Jesus just, you know, sort of nonchalantly coming out and suddenly taking away uh, their teacher's audience, and they get really bothered by this. Maybe they just want John to get the credit he deserves. You know, maybe they want him to be uh, recognized for the being the trailblazer that he is. And and so they come to him, and they're like, "It's it's um, everyone's going to this other guy that you that you said was the Messiah. Everyone's going over to him now." And John is not bothered by this at all. He says, "Of course they're going to him. He's the bridegroom. The bride is for the bridegroom." That's where the bride belongs. 
Now, this warrants a much deeper dive into biblical themes than you and I have time for in a quick daily podcast. But I'll just say briefly, in the Old Testament, there are several relationships that God uses to describe the kind of relationship he desires with his people, but none of them has the potency, the power, or even the frequency um, throughout, from the early books of the of Moses through the prophets to the end. None of them has the same frequency or power as God's description of himself as a husband and his people as his wife. This is actually the language that is typically behind some of the strongest language in the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, who accuse God's people of adultery and unfaithfulness, which is, of course, marital uh, language. It is a relationship that God desires with his people that is not primarily about authority or about hierarchy or about power, but a relationship that is about commitment and about intimacy. Now, what do we... What do we learn from God's insistence in using marital language to describe the kind of relationship he wants with his people? Well, there's several things that we could say, but I'll just pull out two things. First of all, uh, a marriage is a committed relationship. That is, it is something that is based on promises and faithfulness. It is not based on feelings or emotions. So it is a relationship in that sense that is bound by duty. There are things that um, a person in a marriage does because they have made a commitment. And a marriage that has no sense of obligation or duty is, is not a marriage that's going to last very long. At the same time, it's not just commitment. It's not just obligation. It's, it's also love and intimacy and connection and emotion. Um, and a marriage that has none of that and is only obligation and commitment and duty that marriage probably won't last very long either, or at least it won't certainly won't be a very fulfilling one. When God says to his people in the Old Testament, I am the husband and you are the wife, he is saying, I am in a bound, permanent, covenant relationship with you that is marked by, uh, by an obligation to one another, but that is also deeply emotionally satisfying and intimate. That is the sort of relationship I made you for. And then John calls Jesus the bridegroom. And this is not a mistake. This is not a weird slip up. This is not some strange metaphor. This is language that actually finds itself into the New Testament narrative. Many times Jesus himself calls himself the bridegroom uh, in Matthew chapter 9 and other places. Later on, as we saw in the podcast months ago, I think it was in May in John 14, uh, Jesus intentionally uses betrothal language to describe uh, his commitment to return to get his uh, his followers, his church, so that they can be together as husband and wife. So this is this is a part of uh, of Jesus's revelation to the world that he is here as the bridegroom, which is to say, quite simply, that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the God of the Old Testament who spoke covenant promises to the people of Israel. That Jesus is is actually the embodiment of and the fulfillment of those promises. That Jesus is the bridegroom coming for the bride. And that the ministry of Jesus and the announcement of the kingdom and the passion of Jesus and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, all of these things are actually at their source a bridegroom coming to receive 
his bride. So this is a really big deal, what John is saying here. This isn't something to just be like, oh, okay, that's kind of, that's, that's strange language. John is saying, I am a friend of the bridegroom, and when I hear the bridegroom's voice and I see the bride rushing to the bridegroom, my joy is fulfilled. My joy is overflowing. And then he says, because I must decrease so that he can increase. I must become less so that he can become more. Now, this is not merely John saying, at the, well, we're coming into the landing of our ministry. You know, it's, it's probably time to begin to pack up shop, boys. This isn't him simply passing the torch. He is actually, in a sense, stating the mission of every one of Christ's friends. That actually the mission of every one of Christ's friends is to decrease so that Christ can increase. He says that uh, first, he says, no one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven, which is just his way of saying, no one has anything, no power, no influence, authority, whatever. No one has anything, platform, resources, job opportunities. No one has anything that isn't directly from the hand of God, which means that whether or not you keep it or whether you lose it, whether it's there for a bit and then it goes away, it was never yours to begin with. It was never mine to begin with. It was always something that was given to me. My job was and always is and will be to be faithful with what and with who I've been given, but it was always for him and about him. So one of the things that you'll see if you ever read church history, and I hope you will because it'll shape you um, in good ways. But if you read biographies or you read just stories about you know, sort of some of the heroes of the church that have gone before us, you know, all the way back to the beginning, what you'll see again and again is that most of them, not all of them, but the ones, the ones that you want to be like, one of the things you'll notice about their life is that the older they get, the smaller they get in their own eyes. Which is not um, because their impact shrinks. There's actually an incongruency almost always between the breadth and the magnitude of the impact and how small they are in their own eyes. But you just see it again and again. But the way it works is that the longer you walk with Jesus, the less they are interested in themselves the less they're interested in self-promotion, the less they're interested in egotism and propping up their own pride. Whereas uh, in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, um, they would have been defensive. They would have felt the need to protect themselves, to be understood. Now as older women, as older men, they're fine with being misunderstood. What is that? That is what it looks like to decrease so that the bridegroom can increase. That's what it looks like. Because for friends of the bridegroom, their joy is not in their own importance, but it's in hearing the voice of the bridegroom. For friends of the bridegroom, their joy is seeing the bride rush into the arms of the bridegroom, not into their own arms. They're just a friend. So how can you, this week, move in the direction of decrease? How can you and I make small decisions to make less of ourselves. One of the spiritual disciplines that doesn't get a lot of airtime, but I love quite a bit, is called secrecy. I say I love it not because I do it, but I just love the idea of it. It's called secrecy. And secrecy is not like, you know, Christian secrets. It's the idea of doing things for people in a way that you'll never get caught doing them. 
It's the idea of giving your life away in ways that are intentionally subversive so that people don't know it's you. What's a way that you could do something for someone, maybe even someone you live with this week, a roommate, a family member, a coworker, that you could just do that would just be an act of secrecy? A way of saying, this isn't about me increasing. This is about me decreasing and him increasing. So may you find ways to decrease this week. May, may you find a new joy this week in being the friend of the bridegroom. And yet at the same time, may you also experience this week a deep peace as you remember that you're not just the friend of the bridegroom, you are also the bride. And that he said, Surely I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But if I say I will go and prepare a place for you, then I will come back to take you so that you can be with me, so that we can be together. Grace and peace to you, friends. You are loved. I hope you are well and hope we are together soon.